Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. All right, before we get into it, I would just like to say thank you so much to Susie Peterson for guiding us last week in her teaching through the story known as the sinful woman who anoints Jesus. We're going to be following close on the heels of that this evening as we look at not uh, Luke's version of that story, but John's version of that story. For those of you that are new, we've been uh, going through the gospel of John for over a year now. And we're like halfway through. Apologies uh, as far as that goes. But I wanted us to to spend some time here, not just with John's version of this story, but with some of the other synoptic gospels and their version of this story as well. So our teaching uh, tonight will be focused on John chapter 12 and the first, really the first eight verses, although I'm gonna throw 9, 10, and 11 on as an appendix to this uh, to kind of give some of our thoughts a, a, a clearer conclusion. Okay, so this is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It reads, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Then Mary took an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, then wiped his feet dry with her hair. The house was filled with the aroma of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, that is Jesus, complained, this perfume was worth a year's wages. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would take what was in it. Then Jesus said, leave her alone. This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial, and this is how she has used it. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. Many Jews learned that he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The chief priests decided that they would kill Lazarus too. It was because of Lazarus that many of the Jews had deserted them and come to believe in Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. God. So 
So I was having coffee with somebody this past week, and, and uh, she has been reading through the gospel. Specifically, she was reading through the book of Matthew, and as she was going through, she was keeping a long list of questions. And I have to tell you, like this just makes my week when somebody says, hey, I've been reading through one of the gospels, and I have a huge list of questions. Can we meet at Rise Up for coffee? And I just ask you all these questions. I love that. <laughs> if you guys need someone just to sit and hear your questions, I don't answer all of them for sure, but I'll hear them and engage uh, them with you. But she had all these questions, and one of the questions was kind of this, uh, at a macro level, basically, why are there four Gospels? And what are we supposed to do with the four Gospels? Because when you read them, and when you read them closely, they don't always agree with one another. One of the things that we've seen, especially as we look at the Gospel of John, John sort of just does his own thing. And we have the synoptics, the, the Gospels that are to be read together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that oftentimes look and feel a lot more similarly. But her question is, why do we have these four Gospels and what are we to do with them? Which leads us into a super nerdy conversation about Gospel source criticism. Who's pumped? Because the question underneath of the question is, where have these stories come from? What are the traditions that are uh, sort of encouraging the authors to make their decisions? And how do we piece all of this together? When you have four gospels, sometimes that read very similarly, sometimes that tell the same stories. I'll go ahead and spoil this one for you. The anointing of Jesus is told in all four gospels, even though they're very, very different. But scholars have gone back behind this and attempted to show where these stories are coming from and why they look similarly and why they sometimes look a bit different. And we have uh, found this two-source theory. This is the dominant theory in gospel source criticism about where these stories have come from. Most scholars will say this. They will say that Mark is the first gospel. And on the basis of Mark, Matthew and Luke are reading Mark and then constructing their account with Mark in mind. Now here's the cool part. Sometimes Matthew and Luke agree against Mark. You know what I mean? If they're not going with Mark, but the two of them are in cahoots. So scholars, the people that get paid to make these decisions, have postulated and hypothesized a source that doesn't exist in real life, but it is known as Q in the scholarly community. Matthew and Luke, they say, when they agree against Mark, they're going back to this hypothetical source document. You understand? It doesn't exist in the real world, but scholars have said it must exist somewhere even though we don't know where it is because Matthew and Luke agree with each other against Mark, so they must have this source. This is the two-source theory. The two sources are Mark and Q. Q doesn't exist. Q is an initial of quell, which in German means source, okay? Now, some scholars, because they're scholars and they get paid to make decisions and they get paid to disagree with people, said, no, 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 not the two-source theory. In fact, one scholar uh, whose last name is Farrer said, 
actually what happens is Mark is the first gospel, yes, and Matthew and Luke both use Mark, yes, but Luke, when Luke agrees with Matthew, it's because Luke has used Matthew. There is no cue. There is no hypothetical source. And all the scholars said, what, what? Farrer has this theory, and not everybody's on board, although it has caught some traction, especially over in Great Britain. And one of the, the prime advocates of a version of this would, is, a, is a New Testament scholar at Duke named Mark Goodacre. He's got a podcast. I'll link it on our Facebook page just because I can sense in your eyes, you guys want more of this. You want more gospel source criticism, and I will give it to you. But then there's another guy named Griesbach, and actually I believe if memory serves correctly, he's the one that kind of initiated this whole uh, study. He says, no, in fact, Mark doesn't have priority. He's not the first, Matthew is the first. And Luke and Mark both go back and look at Matthew. And sometimes Mark is using Luke too. Complete bombshell, great, good, wonderful. Excellent, this is why I'm showing you all of this. First of all, because I think it's really stinking cool. Second of all, because I think it's important for us to know our sacred text. Third of all, because of this, it says, it is indisputable that the fourth evangelist, that's John, drew on earlier traditions in the composition of his gospel. In other words, he did not create the gospel from whole cloth. What's happening? When John is telling the story, it's based on traditions that predate John, that John knows that John is putting into his gospel. Think of all of the different gospel authors as people who are curating traditions, picking and choosing and shaping and beautifully putting together. It's almost like, not really, but almost like when some of your favorite musicians use a sample from an old CD, an old record, an old LP, an old eight track, an old whatever, and that becomes the basis for their new song, okay? This is what the gospel authors are doing. They're taking old stuff and bringing it into their understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, Gail R. O'Day continues, it's critical, therefore, that the contemporary reader, that's us, not be naive about the transmission of traditions in the first decades of the church, that's what we're trying to address, or about the composition process. She goes on to say, source and composition theories help the contemporary reader to recognize and remember that the development of New Testament literature did not move in one step from the time of Jesus to the written gospels, but that there were many intermediate steps. This will help us. Right now, it seems like a bunch of words, and you're like, all right, land the plane, Josh. Land it. Stick with me. We will get there. So this whole two-source theory, which is the dominant theory within scholarship, Mark is the first gospel, Matthew and Luke use Mark, but sometimes they agree against Mark and they're using Q. When we throw John into the mix, John isn't doing any of this. John is using independent but shared traditions and writing his own gospel. And if you want to take one step back, they all are. Mark is dependent upon these oral traditions about Jesus. Q, if it exists, is dependent on these oral traditions. And John is definitely uh, dependent upon these oral traditions. This is why they're telling all the same stories, but this is why they're telling them in very different 
ways because sometimes the traditions have morphed and moved and the communities surrounding these books are telling them in ways that are unique to those communities. All of this helps us to understand that while we have four stories of Jesus being anointed by some woman at some time, these communities are dependent upon the different oral traditions that are circling above. Now, one more nerdy element, okay, before we can get into what's happening here. What we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are these traditions about Jesus being anointed before his death, at some point before his death. One of the traditions is in Mark and Matthew. Notice I put Mark first because most people think that Mark is the the one that has priority. Mark's the one that was written first. Mark is the one who wrote the earlier LP that people are then borrowing as they're creating their own music, so to speak. The when of this is, is the same. It's two days before Passover. It's in Bethany. They're at the house of Simon the leper. Some unknown, unnamed woman is the one who goes into this dinner party and anoints Jesus. She anoints his head with the ointment because she's preparing him for burial, and the disciples are the ones that get ticked. Luke is totally and utterly different. In Susie's sermon last week, it's not set anywhere near the time of Jesus' near death. It's set in the early parts of Jesus' ministry, randomly in Galilee, which is in the north, very far away from Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. Simon, they're at Simon, who's known as the Pharisee's house, and it's a sinful woman. She still doesn't have a name, but now she's noted as a sinful woman, and the people around the table say, if Jesus knew who this person was, then he most certainly would not allow her to touch him or anoint him or be anywhere near him. Some prophet he is. And in this text, the reason why the woman wants to anoint Jesus in the first place is because she's so grateful that Jesus has forgiven her of her sins. And she anoints him not on the head, but on the feet. It's strange, but we have these two distinct traditions. These two don't go together really in any sort of way other than a woman is anointing Jesus somewhere at some random meal. And now look what John does. John takes elements from both of these traditions and brings them together. For example, he places the story at Bethany, the same that Mark and Matthew do. He has the woman anointing Jesus for burial. This is something that would happen after death where people would anoint the dead uh, corpse with, with ointments and spices. In fact, as Mary anoints Jesus with one pound of this pure nard that we're gonna talk about in a moment, Later in in John's gospel, uh, I believe it's Joseph of Arimathea shows up and he has a hundred pounds of ointments and spices to anoint Jesus' body so that it doesn't smell, so that it is preserved for a little bit longer. And this is what uh, Mary seems to be doing here as she's anointing Jesus for burial. Note, she doesn't anoint his head, she also anoints his feet. So we have these differences, these different traditions that the author is bringing together for this story. 
Again, Gail R. O'Day says the fourth evangelist seems to have combined these two traditions into one story in composing his story of the anointing. The fourth evangelist, that's John, carefully combines the details from these two anointing traditions because both stories have details that serve his, the author's, theological purposes. I want you to sit with that for a minute because what's happening here is This scholar, with whom I agree, is saying the way that John is shaping the story and why it looks so different than the others is because John has a theological agenda that is being pushed upon his readers. We might be sitting here thinking, well, Mark and Matthew are saying one thing, and Luke's saying another thing, and John's saying something different. So which one is right? Wrong question, wrong question. That's a a question that we have been trained to ask because we care about the Bible being correct at all times. Flashback to my coffee conversation and the girl saying, why are there four gospels? I don't know, but they weren't out of sorts about the fact that they disagree with each other a lot. We are because we've gone off track somewhere and we've demanded things of the Bible that the Bible itself isn't really demanding. We try to make all these things go together and make sense, so we have you know, Jesus being anointed by whatever, whatever, and like we try to combine it all, but that's not the point. They're all right, they're all true. I'm gonna throw a theologically loaded word at you. They're all inerrant, sort of in the sense that what the author wants to present is being presented. What the author wants to communicate is being communicated. What the author wants us to see is available for us to see. When we flash over to the which one is right question, we're missing the point entirely. What we should be asking is, what's the theology underlying this story? Why is it in there? And when we ask this question, we get the most passive aggressive text emoji of all time. That's the one, that's the question that we should be asking. Why is John including this? Now, if you're unsettled, and if you think what I have done is just taken a big bum fuddle of stuff and kind of swept it under the rug, let's have coffee. Because I would love to talk to you about all the times the Bible disagrees with itself and is in tension with itself and has these discrepancies. And if you want to call them errors, I'm fine with that because we should be honest about the book that we have. But here the question is, what's the theological point that John is attempting to get across to his audience? And in order for us to see this, we're going to march our way through the text and I'm going to show you just a little bit of stuff that's happening in the way that John has shaped this story and presented this story so that we can get to a place where we say, I know what he's doing, I see what's happening, I love it, and I'm leaving changed because of it, okay? So that was seven or eight minutes of nerd stuff to get to the application stuff, and if you've fallen asleep during the nerd stuff, wake up, here we go, (laughs) application stuff coming right at you. 
The entire book of John, I want you to see this, the first 11 chapters, it encompasses Jesus' entire ministry. And if you want to put a time frame on that, it's about three years or so, especially with the cycles that John is using. He's got Jesus going to the Passover three times in his gospel. So we have a good bit of time in these first 11 verses. So in the last year of us traveling through the book of John, We've encompassed the the broad contours of Jesus' entire ministry, but now the book slows down entirely and focuses for a lot of time just on the last seven days of Jesus' life. Some scholars say that the Gospels, in fact, are passion stories with extended introductions. Passion stories being the last week of Jesus' life leading to his death and ultimately getting to his resurrection, which we see in the last couple of chapters in John's Gospel. I didn't know how to to really get this across um, in a good image for you, but hopefully you can see that we're gonna slow down, not us, but the, the Gospel of John, slow down and really take care over the last seven days. In fact, he's got him talking to his disciples for a few chapters Uh, the night before he's crucified. So it says that six days before the Passover, that's where we get uh, that time frame, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him. This is really strange because we have a brother and two sisters that are like the heads of households. Some people, flashback to that image of all the four different gospels and the different details. Remember Simon the leper or Simon the Pharisee? Some people think that the dad of this whole crew might be named Simon. I personally think they might be grabbing uh, for something to be true there, but Simon's not mentioned in this text, nor is the dad. We've got a brother and his two sisters that are hosting a dinner. It's kind of strange, and it says that Martha served and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. We can focus for a moment here on Martha because the picture of her, what is she doing in this gospel? It says Martha served and Lazarus was there. This is the picture that we have of Martha in the other text where we know of her in Luke chapter 10. It says, while Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary. Any sisters in the room might wanna peek up here and think about this because you can tag folks in your family as the Martha and as the Mary. And this is gonna get dicey here in a moment. Martha has a sister named Mary who sits at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. You don't do this in the first century. Women do not intermingle with men, let alone sitting at his feet. Martha's in the back serving and she's seeing her sister go rogue and hang out with Jesus and she's thinking, I, Mary, no, no, get back here and do the dishes. She's ticked. And we see this playing out by contrast. The author says, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for the meal. You ever been to your family's house during Thanksgiving? You got the people in the kitchen that are doing the kitchen stuff. And if you're in the way, you might lose it because they've got things to do. The yams need to get on the table. The turkey needs to get fried and on the table. That sort of a thing. Maybe that's just my family. I don't know. As soon as I start driving there, mom starts texting me, ETA, ETA, what's your ETA? Like, calm down. 
So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? I'm in here slaving away, Jesus. Do something about it. And he's got no time for this. Jesus says, quote, classic, Martha, Martha, you are worried about so many things. Your sister Mary has chosen what is better. And if these two weren't already at each other's throats, they were definitely at their throats now because Jesus is kind of signing off saying, Mary's right, and you need to settle down, and there's more room at my feet for you, girlfriend. I added the girlfriend there. I don't think, I don't think Jesus would have said that, wouldn't have translated back in the day like it does so well for us today. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. Martha, stop freaking out about the yams. You're missing it. But the characteristics here are sticking because in this story, what's Martha doing? Serving, 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 serving. Very different picture from Mary. As we know, Mary takes an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound. In the Greek, this is a Roman pound, but as we do some quick calculations, that's about 12 ounces for us, so three quarters of a pound of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Yes. <laughs> Just, that's a little tip of the cap to Susie. That's Susie's joke, sorry. I uh, stole it because it was so good. As I was editing the sermon from last week, she didn't say what she was doing. And just for the people on the podcast, I showed a picture of Andy Bernard from The Office to go along with Pure Nard. Um, when she did that, you could just hear like Laura Rogers in particular just cackling in the back. So when you see Laura, just say, hey, I heard you laughing online. Uh, this very expensive perfume that's made of pure nard. She anoints Jesus' feet with it, and then she wipes his feet dry with her hair. I want you to focus on this for a second. She anoints Jesus' feet with what? Nard. This, yeah, okay, yeah. This really expensive perfume. Then what does she do? She wipes it off. Does that make sense to you? You guys seem ambivalent. <laughs> Scholars think like, whoa, this is crazy. Because you don't take an expensive ointment and then just wipe it off. It's like when you're putting your Bengay on all of your joints for the, for the 30 and ups, you know? You don't just put it on and then wipe it off immediately. You wait for it to soak in so you can get those elbows going, those joints moving, you know what I mean? So it seems weird that she's anointing Jesus' feet with this really expensive perfume and then immediately wiping his feet dry with her hair. And then note, it also says the house was filled with the aroma of the perfume. We can focus on Mary and see how she's very different from Martha. And I wanna come back to this because as we're reading this story, it's begging for us to embody the story, specifically figuring out who we are in the life of the story. And I know, and I know that there's a lot of Marthas in the room and I'm probably one of them that's busy with all the stuff, trying to get everything ready. But we can also see what Mary is doing here. And I threw this on here just because I liked it. When I was reading about it, I thought, people really think this is funny. So here's a line from Craig Keener who says, the term myrrh, which actually is uh, buried in our translations, this is the expensive ointment. It's a pound, a Roman pound of 
myrrh. Then he goes on to say uh, it's expensive uh, perfume made of pure nard, but this myrrh term is, is floating around. The term myrrh normally indicates a perfume or ointment of myrrh, whether as dried powder or liquid, made from, quote, the gummy resin that exudes from a low shrubby balsam tree, which grows in west central South Arabia and in northern Somaliland. But like Mark, John uses the term more generally. Thank you, Craig Keener, for this very enlightening, yet thorough and detailed description of myrrh. I was wrong. You guys didn't appreciate that. I apologize. He goes on to say that nard refers to spike nard. You know, that clears it up, doesn't it? <laughs> spike nard, it's a fragrant oil from the root of the nard plant, you know. When you're going to look for your succulents, you say, got any nard? <laughs> Please try that. Go to Lowe's, yeah. uh, tell them I sent you, and say, got any nard over here? <clears throat> it's a nard plant of the mountains of northern India. The point is, this was the good stuff. And you can read here, this was the really expensive stuff. This is why Judas gets so ticked. What are you doing? You're wasting what actually is worth an entire year's wages. Susie threw out the term last week that it was $55,000 or so, and I imagine that's based on the, the mean income uh, of the average worker here in uh, America or whatever. But it's, it's a year's wages of stuff. It's the good stuff. Now, flashback, why would you dump it on somebody's feet and then quick wipe it up? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. She anoints Jesus' feet with it, then she wipes his feet dry with her hair. In Luke, I want you to flash back here. The woman shows up at the dinner. Everybody's feet are hanging outside of the table because remember, they're all reclining. They're like on an elbow. The table's here in the middle. And they got the feet out to the side. And this woman comes in, this sinful woman in Luke chapter seven, and she starts weeping. And her tears cover Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair and she dries the tears off of Jesus' feet. And then she takes her ointment and anoints them with this precious gift. But in John, it's like he's bringing these two things together. Mary anoints Jesus with the perfume and then immediately wipes, wipes it off. The use of the verb here for um, what Mary does to the feet is important, and there's a link that's happening, and we'll get there in just one moment. N.T. Wright says this, and I found it to be a bit strange. He said, in order for this to take place, she would need to let her hair down for, for the purpose of, of uh, anointing his feet and then wiping it off. And that's roughly equivalent, N.T. Wright says, at a modern polite dinner party of a woman hitching up a long skirt to the top of her thighs. I read it, and I had what Elisa's face looks like in my brain, too, like, this is a really strange image. And also, maybe, because these codes of women's hair were to be employed for married women only, not everyone. And it seems that Mary is a single woman, so the fact that she's letting her hair down might not be that big of a deal. But clearly, for NT and other people like NT, maybe, as the hair is going down, there might be some folks in the room that are saying, whoa, yeesh. What's going on here? The point, though, in this story is this was servant stuff. You don't just go and anoint somebody's feet. That's what the servants do. And I want us to connect the dots here. Mary is taking um, this, this ointment, 
Perhaps she's doing something equivalent to rolling up her skirt, getting down on her knees, anointing Jesus' feet in the role of a servant. Churched folks, does this sound like a story you've heard before? In the very next chapter, this is Jesus who takes on the role of a servant, has his disciples in front of him, disrobes, gets down and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And the same word that's used for when he wipes their feet dry is the same verb that is used of Mary when she wipes Jesus' feet dry with her hair. And all my people said, "Woo, that's good. (laughs) You might not have known that, but what John is doing, he's linking these stories together, showing us that Mary is embodying devoted discipleship. Everything that Jesus was about, she is doing. She is enacting. She is the one that is being Jesus. When the Gospels were written, friends, they were written in very patriarchal times when men were on top and the women stayed in the kitchen like Martha wanted to. But here, what our author John has done is said, hey, I want you guys to pay attention. She gets it. It's interesting because in Matthew and Mark, these stories right here about the woman who anoints Jesus' feet or Jesus' head, excuse me, it says at the climax of that story, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, wherever in the whole world the good news is announced, wherever in the whole world people are talking about me and what I have done, wherever in the whole world people are talking about forgiveness of sin, where people are talking about self-sacrifice and love, where people are talking about anything that's good, when people are talking about the gospel, what she's done, what this unnamed woman in Matthew and Mark has done will be told in memory of her. Sit with that for a second. Wherever the gospel is preached, what the woman in Matthew and Mark has done by anointing Jesus for his burial, it will be told. What she's done will be told in memory of her. Now stick with me, because I find this fascinating. But I'm like 0 for 5 tonight on what I find fascinating and what you guys definitely don't, okay? This is where we need two services because I would take out like 19 slides that I thought would be cool that are not cool. Right, Brian? Absolutely. That's a lose-lose because you can't say yes because then you're saying like, yes, Josh, that was really boring, but you can't say no because then you'd be lying. It's a trick question. Okay. In John's gospel, it says she anoints Jesus' feet with this ointment. She wipes his feet dry with her hair. And then there's this really weird line about the house that was filled with the aroma of the perfume. And you might just be thinking, well, yeah, I mean, she's dumped a pound of perfume on this guy's feet and wiped it up with her hair. Like, that's going to fill the whole room. But check this out. Remember, Matthew, Mark, wherever the story is told, wherever the gospel is preached, what she's done will be told in memory of her, let's get ancient, okay? Remember, we've got the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the ancient Jewish interpreters would go back and they would explain things, much like a commentary will for us. And in the the commentary of Ecclesiastes, in Midrash Rabbah, it says, the fragrance of a good perfume 
spreads from the bedroom to the dining room. So does a good name spread from one end of the world to the other. I'll connect it for you. If the author of John has this in the background, he doesn't have to say wherever the good news is preached, this story will be told in memory of her. All he has to do is say that the fragrance of the room from the bedroom to the dining room to everywhere else is being uh, present for the people. This is Mary's good name. Mary embodies devoted discipleship and the fragrance of her good name has filled the entire earth. Stick with me, because this one's gonna hurt. Are we telling her story? I've heard the gospel preached a lot, friends. I've heard people talk about Jesus and how great he is. You don't hear much about Mary, and you don't hear much about the unnamed woman who's anointing his head with beautiful perfume that's costly and extravagant. We don't usually praise the women in rooms like this. We usually subjugate them. They're back teaching the kids. They don't have a role in this place. Are we telling these stories of the women in the first century that are doing the work of Jesus and serving as the primary examples of what it looks like to be devoted followers? Or have we sectioned them off? Sit with that. In contrast to Mary and to her devoted discipleship, it says Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who is about to betray him. The author is really trying to make this clear. Note all of these parentheses here. This is the author's commentary on Judas. It says that he's complaining. This perfume was worth a year's wages. It was worth a lot of money. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor like Judas gives two junks about this? In fact, John says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would take what was in it. There's uh, stories within the Gospels where Judas would leave and people would say like, yeah, that's what he does. He has the money and he goes and gives it to the poor. But the author of John is not letting us off the hook with that. Judas, in fact, is the one who is contrast to Mary and to her beautiful act of self-giving sacrifice and love. And we have Judas on the other side of this as the greedy uh, money-hungry, self-centered individual. N.T. Wright says there's no escaping the challenge posed by the standoff between Mary and Judas. It's one of those scenes which positively shouts at the reader, where are you in this picture? Here's our application. We've got this beautiful story. And we've got these different players within the story. It starts off with Martha. Martha's serving. And I don't want to read too much into that, but it seems like Martha's got you know, some, some stuff going on, according to Luke anyway, and she's in the back and she's making it sure everything has its place and she's kind of missing the point of what's going on while her sister is out demonstrating her love to Jesus. Martha is over here kind of focused on the work at hand and missing Jesus in the midst, especially as Jesus is almost going to the cross to die, Martha is settled over here, making sure all the preparations are right and missing what's happening over here. And in the room, I would just imagine, 
And oftentimes in our lives, we're busy over here with all of the details and all of the things and missing the important relationship that's happening over here. We're, we're busy even doing our good things, our good deeds, and we're missing the Jesus in the midst of that. And also when we hear, when we see people like Mary getting the praise in Luke chapter 10, Martha, chill, Mary has chosen the good thing. Or in John chapter 12, Mary in front of all of these people when Jesus affirms what she has done. And Martha like kind of peeking through the door, seeing her sister again get affirmed over and over and over. And she begins to wonder, do I matter? Does he think of me? Does he love me in the same way that he loves her? And I don't know if this is just for me, but there's moments in my life when I'm looking through the crack in the door, seeing other people on the other side getting affirmed, and I'm wondering, do you care? What about me? What about all the stuff that I'm doing? What about all the things that I'm devoting myself to? And that, that over there, it's like we, we get into these moments, especially, let me be real old for a second and say, get off my lawn. With all this social media stuff, it's easy for us to compare and to contrast and to look through the cracks in the door. We also see Judas and we might be quick to, to write him off saying like, oh, we're nothing like that. We would never sell Jesus out. And I would want us to pause for a moment and consider perhaps how much like Judas we actually are. How close we seem to be, but then how, how distant we are. And then finally we have Mary in the story who demonstrates herself to be one who is devoted to Jesus, who is passionately following Jesus, who, who gets it, who sacrifices and loves and is devoted. And wherever the gospel is preached, her story is told, and the world is filled with her fragrance. Does that speak of us? and how we are attempting to live for Jesus? Now, stick with me, friends, because as I hear the words coming out of my mouth, all I hear is guilt, shame, guilt, shame. You're not like Mary. Mary's way better than you. You haven't devoted any of your precious ointments to Jesus. What are you doing? You're Judas. You're Martha. You're all the bad characters in the story. Settle down. <laughs> There's grace at the table, okay? I do think that it's good for us to be honest in our self-assessments and self-reflections. I want guilt and shame to be gone because there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. But I do want us to be passionate about living it out in a way that's compelling. I want whatever Mary has to be something that infects who we are, where self-sacrifice and love for our Savior invades us, and the fragrance of those deeds becomes palpable to the people around us. I want that to fuel us as we go without the guilt, without the shame, without all of the baggage that comes along with it, but are we able to say, 
that we understand where she is in her life, and if not, can we too get there? The text ends uh, in this way. Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial. This is a really tough verse in the Greek, and the Common English Bible has made some suggestions for it along the way. And this is how she has used it. It says, you will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. So says Jesus. There's so much that we could unpack there, but I don't want to get into that this evening. What I want us to hear and see are these characters in this story that John is wanting us to engage, to see how Jesus is dealing and interacting and to see how this theological picture of Mary who takes on the role of Jesus, this this self-sacrificial servant who places her pride down for the sake of her savior. And I want us to be inspired by that. And I want us to take whatever that is and go live it out. And I also want us, when we speak the gospel, to praise these women who seem to understand what serving Jesus is all about. I'm hopeful that in the the retelling of these stories that, yes, we would be able to look in the mirror and find who we are in the story, who we are emblematic of, but also to be moved towards hope that we can always walk towards Jesus and live and love him with more tenacity than we have before. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.